Welcome to this week's episode of the CPG View, the number one CPG information source for global omni-channel leaders. All right, my friend, thank you for joining this week's episode of the CPG View. I know we had vacations and we had other things in the way, uh, but I'm glad that we were able to finally do this together. Before we get started and go down our, our list of questions here, would you mind introducing yourself, uh, your name and the company you work with? My name is Andrew Freeman. Uh, I currently work for CP Skin Health Group, so it's a part of Colgate Palmolive. Not many people know that it exists. We are their professional skincare side of the business, um, which comprises the brands Elta MD, PCA Skin, and Falorga. And um, you know, I am their VP of Ecom in the US, so I manage all the different channels that we have across our brands, everything from D to C, B to B. And then our retail partners and, of course, our peer plays like Amazon. Nice. Um, and as we get in here, I think those will, will quickly see you have a deep background in CPG and other brands. But I just wanted to get your a little bit of color here on, you know, you do have quite an extensive experience in e-commerce across the CPG space. Can you share some of the main challenges and opportunities maybe that you see evolving and growing in our space? Yeah, you know, having spent the time I have now in CPG, which is coming up on eight years. So, you know, I've, I've had, as people know, if they look me up on LinkedIn, I've had a lot of different iterations of my uh, e-com career, but now eight years in CPG. Um, you know, the main challenge is, is really what it's been since I joined. It's bringing people along on the digital journey still today. It, it's a little bit amazing to me, but overall, I would say, you know, in leadership roles at tops of companies, they're still, they still don't have a digital first mindset. They're learning it, right? They're much farther along now than when I started eight years ago. Um, but I would still say that's a huge challenge that we run into, especially being, you know, a digital leader in companies. Um, and I mean, honestly, I understand part of it, right? In many categories, traditional sales channels like a Walmart, like a Target are still their primary sales mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So that is where a lot of the a lot of the attention is paid. And, and because of that, you know, it, it just seems like you constantly are still having that discussion around the importance of digital. Um, so while that still continues to change, right, I still feel like that's probably one of our largest challenges in CPG is still sort of winning hearts and minds in the, in the at the highest levels of the business and sort of making them better understand, you know, why digital is so important to the companies themselves. So, and, and really honestly, I came in back in 2015 at Kimberly Clark and it's been very similar conversations in the three CPGs I've been in so far. <laughs> and and the, they tend to continue in very similar ways. From an opportunity perspective, um, I think it's really about still embracing digital, but throughout the whole business. How does digital have impacts throughout the business? So it isn't so much anymore about we just have you know digital teams, digital marketing teams, an e-commerce team. You know, how does e-commerce and digital play into supply chain? How does it play into finance? How does it play into sales? And, you know, I do think that we're watching some CPGs that have been in the space a little bit longer than others get more accustomed to it. And they are looking at things like merging their sales teams together, right? Now they don't have a separate e-com and a separate sales team. Now it's becoming one sales team. And that digital has such an influence, whether you're, sorry, whether people are buying in store 
whether yeah. people are buying online, it, there is such a large influence. That's why it's becoming more critical for those sides of the businesses to come together and not be so separate. Yeah, you, you know, you said a couple of things there. I just wanted to elaborate on one. I totally agree with you on it, it for many of us that have been doing this quite a while. It, it feels like the similar movie with the similar cast of characters with the similar, you know, maybe skeptic here or not sure here, or you get the same questions of is the, the, the margin profiles decretive to our total. It's going to, you know, kind of uh, play havoc on uh, channel management across the board. And one of the things that I've seen is most of the time, those that are the most skeptical and the most vocal are the ones that just don't feel heard. And, and I think if we can lean in as much as possible, I've found, I've found success there and really trying to hear people out. And it's exactly the point you mentioned in the beginning of bringing those on the journey, but really listening before uh, we speak. And I, some, some of us, it's harder to do. I know I'm certainly one of those because you, you want to, you know, you want to help and advance things. But I think listening is, is certainly one um, thing that I've noticed is is very helpful. The other you mentioned on the um, merging of sales teams, and you know, you and I. Let's go back to Reliant Clock. And you know, COVID messed us all up in terms of time. But I don't know. It was five plus years ago that Walmart purchased uh, Jet, uh, and then maybe it was a couple of years ago that Walmart merged their merchant team from you know. Instead of having the San Bruno group and, and the, the Bentonville group, you, they merged and they had, you know, one group, an omni-channel uh, merchant organization. And I think you're, we're seeing that in terms of brands, depending on where they're at on their maturity curve. If they're a well-developed brand uh, along that maturity curve, they probably have already been there, done that. Uh, but, but those in the middle and, and maybe laggards are, are probably having a lot of those conversations uh, and, it's, and it's a challenge for them. Yeah. I mean, I will say one thing that is happening is, you know, the pace of change, even in companies that are a little bit more be that were a little bit more behind, they are very rapidly catching up to everybody else. So that but that's inevitable. Right. I mean, it's just the pace of change goes faster and faster. And the funny thing is the people who are leading the charge now, they've sort of gotten as far as they're going to get for the time being. And there's in a way they've sort of like capped out where they are and everyone else is now rapidly catching up and, and it's just going faster. So, you know, I will admit, you know, when I joined Colgate, I knew that would be a challenge, right? They, they were a little bit further behind on their journey. Um, but I will tell you, like I'm in regular meetings with our global digital organization. I see where we are like in our peer set and we are definitely catching up rapidly, very like much more rapidly than I would have anticipated. So right. we're doing a great right. job and the company has made a lot of great changes that have really helped foster um, a digital first mentality across the business. Yeah. To that point, I wanted to get your perspective. You know, you're you yourself are a leader in the CPG space. Um, and as a brand, you mentioned you, you guys are progressing on the journey. But what have you witnessed with the rise of direct to consumer business models? Um, you, you know, can you share your thoughts on the impact of D2C on the traditional models and, and how CPG brands should maybe or could maybe think about this shift? Yeah, so I think for me, and part of it comes from my background, right? I started in D2C. I started with a, D, you know, owning a D2C business. So really, it was a very different experience for me. I, I have actively been in e-com for 
23 years, which is a really long time to actually have been actively in e-com. It's pretty much since the beginning almost. And, you know, I started that out on a D2C business. Um, you know, it was in the luxury space, so very different than where I am today. But it, it helped me sort of understand, I think, more about how it helped shape businesses overall. Um, and then I've been lucky because I did a lot in tech, so I understand a lot about the underlying technology solutions that you use across these, you know, across business, regardless of whether it's an e-com platform or if it's, you know, digital shelf platform, whatever it is. But, you know, when I look at D2C and how it's sort of evolving, it really is category dependent. But I do think, what, and, and when I say that, I should say as to whether it can be a legitimate business channel. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm gonna say legitimate meaning profitability. Right. Now, there are many reasons to have D2C. Profitability is not necessarily one of them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I was with Kellogg's, that was one of the capabilities that I own the development of. And, you know, there were multiple different businesses that we launched during the time that I was there that were D2C. None of them were huge businesses. A lot of them you might not have ever even known existed, right? Um, but the whole point of doing it was to gather data from consumers for innovation, right? That was really the point of it. So, you know, the, the biggest one that most people knew about that got the most traction was Bare Naked Custom, which was, you know, for Bare Naked Granola, we built this customization engine where you could custom mix your own flavor and it had everything from it was super marketing oriented where you could put your picture on a can and all this other stuff which made it a lot of fun and people loved it so it actually got you know, a fair amount of traction and obviously a lot of attention from a marketing perspective it was great for pr um but what it did actually do for us we ran it for about two years and in that two-year period of time we got a ton of data from consumers on what flavor profiles did they like and that helped inform what new flavors were coming out in Bare Naked. So there, it, the data was invaluable. So the business itself was not profitable. That it was not. And it was never built to be profitable. That wasn't the point of it. I think at first there was a concept of, oh, we could make it something that would be a profit engine. But the reality is not enough sales, right? It just was. It never took off from that perspective. But there was enough critical mass of data that you acquired about the consumer, about the flavor preferences and profiles they had, that you could feed that into the business for innovation. So that's why I'm saying, like, you have to think about why you're doing it. So in a food business, you could do it just for innovation purposes and to figure out new, you know, what are opportunities that we have that we're not even thinking about? Do we try a new type of food that we've never done before and we only sell it D to C to see how it takes off? Um, you know, now being in a very different category, being in professional and premium skincare, which looks completely different, right? Different margins, different price points, different everything. It is a legitimate business, right? It is a legitimate business channel for us. Um, you know, there can be challenges in those channels though as well. So being a professional brand or being professional brands um, that are also sold with in dermatologists office, plastic surgeons offices, et cetera, we had to be creative in how we came up with a direct to consumer business model that would not make us look like we were being com competitive, right? Mm -hmm. Against our pros. So one of the things that we require is that you have to sign up with a professional in order to actually check out. So most people we have actually found, because we've done some analysis on it, most people are really picking their dermatologist, right? They're not just picking someone at random, um, which is great. It's great to see that that's going on. And, you know, they are, they get a reward basically from, from the brand based upon 
the sales that are going through that they're tied to. In addition to that, longer term, part of, you know, in our terms and conditions around how our data is used, in the future, when we're able to, we aren't there yet, we're working towards this future where we can even share data with our professional partners, right? About these are what consumers are buying today. You might wanna keep that in your office location as well because you don't have it today. It's not a SKU that you bring in. So there are a lot of interesting opportunities with it that we're looking at. And, and as I usually say, you know, there's this concept of the virtuous circle, right? We can sit in the center of it as CP Skin Health and then our different ways that consumers can interact with us and professionals can interact with us go around that virtual virtuous circle and it sort of gives you the ability eventually to have that true 360 view of a customer and how the customer works with a pro and vice versa and how we can share data back and forth yeah i i, I wanted to mention one thing before we move to the to the next is i i totally can relate to in my almost 20 years now of being in this space in the in the durables consumer space i can think of maybe 20 percent of the time where d2c was truly a revenue growth accelerator um and 80 percent of the time it was a consumer sentiment analysis, understanding the consumer, being a lead generation to the innovation and new product development funnel uh, that we would then, you know, that would then be taken and scaled, uh, it, you know, into uh, into existing channels of distribution. And I think um, certainly there's no one size fits all. I, yeah, I, you know, that 20 percent of the time, I certainly was a, a very large businesses that were profitable, but by and large, what I've experienced similar to you has been, hey, this is going to be a peach tree dish. A, we're going to test and learn. We're going to understand what consumers' preferences are, and we will then scale our learnings uh, into our existing channels of distribution with a greater degree of confidence to place our you know, big bets in terms of CapEx and multi-year spends and, and things like that. So um, very interesting. I wanted to also ask you, you know, you have experience to your point, you mentioned this a few minutes ago in developing capabilities for different organizations. What are some key factors to consider when implementing a successful e-commerce strategy and how have they varied across, you know, different CPG sectors as you've gone throughout your journey? So, I was thinking about this question because obviously I saw it in advance and it's sort of a broad question. Um, but I'm going to say this, like I learned something in being in two global COE roles, right? I, prior to coming into being in a US based North America based role and really owning a PL within, you know, a company. And, and it's really when you're developing capabilities or e-commerce strategies, it's all about stakeholder engagement and ultimately getting stakeholder buy-in. Here's the thing, when you're in a global role, you don't own a PL. You don't own, you you really are a cost center, right? So you better be developing something great that's gonna help grow the business or you're gonna be out, right? In, in those sort of roles. Um, you know, a friend and former colleague of mine, and you probably know him, Oscar Kazupski, he mentioned to me before I joined Kimberly Clark, he said to me, because he knew I was coming in and, and he's like, you've never been in CPG before, but let me explain to you something. He's like, it's all about politics and optics. Mm -hmm. He's like, that's what these businesses are about. You have to learn to be a master politician um, because you really have to be that person to get these strategies adopted. 
and you have to understand how to work within certain constructs, right? I mean, I, I'm just going to give it as an example. When I was rolling out Digital Shelf at Kimberly Clark, I spent a bunch of time on the road flying all around the world, you know, trying to get people to implement what we were putting in place, right? Mm -hmm. And what, what was going to be this, this global strategy. And I remember I had to go back to the UK like four, three times, I think, to finally get them to say yes. I mean, it was painful, but I yeah. kept going. And it was like, I'd hit a brick wall with the guy who was the leader in the UK. And I'm like, okay, I have to figure this out. Like there has to be a way around this. And I had to figure out my way around, like, like how to politically interact with him in a way that he would appreciate. So therefore he would say, finally say yes. It took three trips to get him to say yes, but you know, he finally did. So it was just, that, so that goes around like, how do you, you know, how do you sort of implement these strategies? A lot of it is buy-in, right? You have to get other people to believe you and believe that what you're saying is true. I mean, that's as true, you know, Honestly, I mean, even when you go through a quarterly review, right, with with your with your upper level management team, with the senior management team, you still have to get the buy-in. You have to get them aligned on what you're talking about, and so that they agree with what your strategy is for the rest of the quarter to deliver the quarter. So, to me, that's really the most critical piece. Yeah, I think you know you you mentioned something really interesting there that struck a nerve with me. I think you, you know those that aren't doing the types of roles that you and I are in or have been in our journey, I think optically you might assume that it's, you know, it's um, black and white in terms of power, um, in terms of decisions to be made, in terms of tech stack and capability deployment, in terms of resource allocation. And, you know, to your point and to, uh, to you know, leverage, you know, what, what Oscar said, it, it's true. You you have to be able to work around the system to navigate um, to help influence others where you don't have uh, perhaps yeah. you know direct P and L responsibilities. And I think you know maybe there's one out of ten of us that don't have to deal with that, but nine out of ten of us are working through that real time. And I think that's a really important insight that it probably is worth highlighting um, to to your point. Yeah, I think like the term that I remember about that is influencing without authority. Yeah, yeah, so true, so true. Well, I wanted to ask you, I know we're, we're coming close to time here and I want to be respectful of your time, but you, emerging trends, hot take, what do you think is one or two hot trends that, that as we look at the CPG industry, uh, that those that, you know, should be paying attention to? So I'm going to double down on what we talked about at uh, Shop Talk. So right now, I do think, and look, it's a hot topic, but I do actually think it is something with teeth. Like it will actually develop, a, there's going to be major developments across every major sector of the economy because of it. And that's generative AI. Mm -hmm. There's no denying the level at which that change is going to completely revolutionize a lot of areas of business, whether it's from marketing, I mean, look, in, in Shopify, they just launched, now we're not using it, but they just launched a, a component where you can now put certain terms in and then just ask them to write your product description for you. Mm -hmm. And then they're using chat GPT based technology to write a product description on a product, which is kind of crazy in many ways. But also when you think about the amount of time you take to do some of this, it, it makes a huge amount of sense. So, and it's not just like, written content, right? It's imagery. It's everything that generative AI can be used for. 
And then it's every way in which you can even use it for interactive chat, right? With your consumers on a D2C site. There's so many different sides to this technology that I think they're gonna find that over the next 12 months, that's gonna be literally leading the majority of the change that we see, um, especially in CPG brands. Um, and, and I know like Colgate, for example, is, is putting together, there's, there's a team now in Colgate that's putting together like the rules and like sort of like the framework of how you use it. Sure. Because you really do have to have that sort of framework that you can work within because guardrails are important with a technology like you know, generative AI. And I'm just really interested to see where we go, right? I mean, I'm really interested to see where we are 12 months from now, because I know this is not like the metaverse where it was a, you know, flash right. in the pan and then it was done essentially. I mean, yeah. web 3.0 has kind of persisted, but the metaverse is sort of, it's not really there at this point. Um, generative AI, because it has applications that work in the real world and help people right now is completely different. So I totally agree with you. I think, you know, as, as operators such as us and, and brands, as we think about, I think generative AI is going to have an impact, whether it's, you know, our traditional frameworks of maybe not, maybe not selection that probably still will be heavily influenced by the, the operators themselves, but probably maybe somewhat degree influence the selection, but definitely content in terms of generating content, optimizing content. I can certainly see capabilities being deployed in terms of ratings and reviews, uh, availability connecting supply chains um, together with, with advertising inventory. Uh, I, I think there's, I've, I totally agree with you that uh, I think if I was a betting person, that, that is where I would put my bet as well. So, well, I did want to, Andrew, before we close out, is there anything else you wanted to, to relate to the, to the community before we close? So look, I think there's still always room for us to grow and, you know, ultimately, and I mean that like as a group, as digital practitioners within the consumer goods industry, as well as just professionally and personally, right? I mean, I, that's, that's kind of what keeps me so interested in e-com, right? It's been changing. As long as I've been in it, it changes every year. Um, and there's always something new. So I would just, you know, if I'm going to say anything to people generally, it's like, just keep being educated, go to, you know, go to shop talk, go to some conferences, I don't care which ones they are, and just be knowledgeable and stay in touch with what's going on. And I mean, they should read what you post on LinkedIn, you always post great information. So I'm going to be honest, oh, thank you. not to plug you, but you know, it's true. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. Maybe it, it has benefited being a nerd in some regards. But to your point, I think, embracing a, a learn it all mentality and, and knowing that it's space is changing and and whatever we knew a year ago is probably changed now and 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 uh that's not a threat that is a just hey let's all continue to learn and evolve as the space does so well i i wanted to say thank you for for joining this week's episode of the cpg view it was awesome to have you and look forward to sharing this with the community thank you very much don Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the CPG View, the number one CPG information source for global omni-channel leaders. Mm -hmm.